Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 214th episode of the Nauticast, titled Under New Management, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 8, in which Jamie becomes regional manager of the Kingsguard, and Loris Terrell becomes assistant regional manager, or assistant to the regional manager. All I know is Boros Blunt is the most likely to spill a giant vat of chili all over the place. And then he's got to taste the whole thing for poison, <laughs> scrape it back up off the rug, and taste every bite of it. So our spoiler warning is always, uh, all five novels, the three Dunkin' Egg novellas, any histories, interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows, prepare to be spoiled for anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from our patron, Timothy D., who asks, who will be in Danny slash Egon's Kingsguard? Uh, great question. I don't think we got a name, uh, all 14, uh, but definitely something that always crops up that George kind of set himself uh, up to do every time someone's going to claim the Iron Throne. We got to know who's going to be in their Kingsguard. Uh, although Stannis has shown a, a characteristic lack of attention, <laughs> lack of consideration, because you know Stannis doesn't want seven guys whose job it is to hang around bothering him all day. Not going to be having that. But yeah, da- uh, Danny and Young Griff. I think the one the one we know for sure is is Duck for Young Griff, much to John Connington's annoyance. But uh, yeah, any any uh, spare knights floating around you think might might serve the role for for either of them? Oh God, um, I was actually going to talk about Duck as possibly someone who ends up migrating over to Daenerys's Kingsguard That's at some point. Because I, I imagine like that. Um, that young Griff will fall before the end game, and you know, one of the ways you make peace is you offer high positions to people from the previous or contending regime. So I always kind of see her, especially if there is going to be like a coalition of the living to fight up north. It might make sense to kind of pick Kingsguard from each of the existing camps. You know, maybe someone who's was part of Rob Stark's campaign. I guess they're all dead, but you know, someone from the north. Uh, uh, I didn't some, die after all. I survived the Red Wedding. Yeah. Come on, Sir Reynold Westerling. You can I, join the King's God. I think by sheer odds, a kettle black will end up on there. There's just too many I, of them. I hope so. That would be hysterical. Um, that please. funny thing is, uh, I, I wouldn't know who in Danny's orbit, like now or previously, like including Jorah Mormont, who would actually be there. Like I imagine Barristan will either be dead or, you know, if he does the horror t- turn cloak thing. So, like, in her existing camp, I think maybe, like, Strong Belwas might be a strong choice. That'd be great. Um, but, Knight him, um, name him. Mm-hmm. Maybe she gets one from each of the Seven Kingdoms just kind of as, a, like, like a performative show of unity. You know, again, the Coalition of the Living kind of taking over where you have one from each group. Um, but I, I'm actually kind of shocked how little I've thought about this and maybe how few options I think are most obvious just because a lot of the people kind of orbiting them I imagine will be dead um, by the time that Danny's really forming her ne- her like true seven of a Kingsguard. Exactly. I agree. Uh, yeah. George has uh, c- cut down the amount of uh, secondary characters that can that can make room for that. I think um, I like the idea of, of duck switching camps or, or strong bell was being knighted. I think uh, if you look at the Kingsguard as it current, currently exists, I think one one that stands out as a possibility for jumping teams is, is Loris Terrell because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he was sent the Dragonstone. We don't know exactly what became of him uh, there. George left that off camera as far as POVs go. He's reportedly still there. He was nearing death. Who knows how much of that re- uh, of that was real. So Dragonstone, Daenerys is definitely going to show up there eventually. That's her birthplace. That's the, the launching point of her campaign for sure. So I think it would be interesting if Loris ended up as part of Danny 7, especially since I don't think he's going to go in any direction like he did in the show. So I think it's an open question what happens to him. I think it would be very funny if at that point Jorah Mormont is back with Danny and is, you know, the Lord Commander of her Queen's Guard, because then, you know, Loris joins up with her and then Danny points to Jorah and goes, okay, that, that grumpy, bald, fat guy that nobody likes, yeah, that's that's your boss. 
<laughs> go to young knights that would be great so uh, thank you so much to timothy d for the question if you want to ask us questions that we are forced forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes every month, early access to our regular episodes, and a chance to ask us questions that we answer at the top of our regular A Song of Ice and Fire episodes. But we are here today to talk about everyone's favorite character, but especially your favorite character, Jamie Lannister. <laughs> so I leave the chapter to you, sir. A white book sat on a white table in a white room. The room was round. Its walls of whitewashed stone hung from white woolen tapestries. It formed the first floor of White Sword Tower, a slender structure of four stories built into an angle of the castle wall overlooking the bay. Say this about the Kingsguard, they got their branding down pat. Jamie's own skin tone matches the aesthetic, as does his traditional Kingsguard garb, though it fits less than well these days, hanging clumsily off his body like the sword at his hip. The wrong hip. Jamie had spent his days at his brother's trial, standing well to the back of the hall. Either Tyrion never saw him there, or he did not know him, but that was no surprise. Half the court no longer seemed to know him. I am a stranger in my own house. Jamie continues to take inventory of the room with its impeccable design, down to the twin swords above the hearth, the shield-shaped table buttressed on three white stallions, and the well-worn chair sitting at its head. Worn by the bony arse of Barristan the Bold and Sir Gerald Hightower before him, by Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, Sir Ryam Redwine, and the Demon of Derry, by Sir Duncan the Tall and the Pale Griffin Alan Connington. How could the Kingslayer belong in such exalted company? At the Lord Commander's station sat the White Book, the long, vaunted, and occasionally twisted of the history of the Kingsguard contained within. The upper corner ordained with the heraldry of the Knight's household, rich and vibrant in color, and the lower corner with the Kingsguard shield, all color drained from it. Among Jamie's duties is to keep the white book current, which also means his duties include learning to write with his offhand. And he has a lot to write, it seems. Two dead Kingsguard at the Blackwater, and a third fled from the fire. Three new knights have taken their place, who we will be meeting shortly. Jamie turns to the page of the Lord Commander who preceded him, Barristan Selmy, whose entry in the book is not only long and storied, but also up to date to his dismissal by King Joffrey. Say what you will, but Barristan made sure to cross his T's and dot his I's, which, you know, is a good habit since he has both T's and I's in his name. Jamie's own page was scant by comparison. Sir Jamie of House Lannister, firstborn son of Lord Tywin and Lord Joanna of Casterly Rock, served against the Kingswood Brotherhood as squire to Lord Sumner Craycall. Knighted in his fifteenth year by Sir Arthur Dane of the Kingsguard, for valor in the field. Chosen for the Kingsguard in his fifteenth year by King Aerys II Targaryen. During the sack of King's Landing, slew King Aerys II at the foot of the Iron Throne. Thereafter known as the Kingslayer. Pardoned for his crime by King Robert I Baratheon. Served in the honor guard that brought his sister, the Lady Cersei Lannister, to King's Landing to wed King Robert champion and attorney held at King's Landing on the occasion of their wedding. Well, Jamie's putting together quite the resume there. The highest mark he has is doing the one thing you aren't supposed to do in your job, <laughs> even though we kind of know he, had, he was right to do it. Everything else ranges from okay to who care, though Jamie kind of wishes Barrison <laughs> flopped up the who care portion a bit with more of his tourney victories. And he wished Sir Gerald spilled a bit more ink about Jamie riding against the Kingswood Brotherhood, saving Lord Sumner, and fighting off the smiling knight until Arthur Dane finished the job. 
What a fight that was, and what a foe. The smiling knight was a madman. Cruelty and chivalry all jumbled up together, but he did not know the meaning of fear. And Dane, with dawn in hand. The outlaw's longsword had so many notches by the end that Sir Arthur had stopped to let him fetch a new one. It's that white sword of yours I want, the robber knight told him as they resumed, though he was bleeding from a dozen wounds by then. Then you shall have it, sir, the sword of the morning replied, and made an end to it. The world was simpler in those days, Jamie thought, and men as well as swords were made of finer steel. Or was it that he had only been fifteen? They were all in their graves now, the sword of the morning and the smiling knight, the white bull and Prince Lewin, Sir Oswald went with his black humor, Ernest John Derry, Simon Toyne and his Kingswood Brotherhood, bluff old Sumner Craycall, and me, that boy I was. When did he die, I wonder? When I donned the white cloak? When I opened Eris's throat? That boy had wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, but someplace along the way he became the smiling knight instead. God damn it, George. Your prose too tough. Your style too different. Your character's too strong. They'll kill you, George. <sighs> but this, this is a perfect distillation of character through the lens of history. Just incredible writing on display. Jamie's brothers start filing in now, the old bros and the new. And after confirming the safety of the king, the Kingsguard performance reviews get underway. The veterans and rookies seat themselves on opposite sides of the shield table, invoking the memory of the Dance of Dragons, where Kingsguard fought Kingsguard. Knowing Jamie's luck, he'll probably have to deal with the same, especially given this lot. Jamie had served with Marin Trant and Boros Blunt for years. Adequate fighters, but Trant was sly and cruel, and Blount a bag of growly air. Sir Balon Swan was better suited to his cloak, and of course the Knight of Flowers was supposedly all a knight should be. The fifth man was a stranger to him, this Osmond Kettleblack. He wondered what Sir Arthur Dane would, would have to say of this lot. How is it that the King's Guard has fallen so low, most like? It was my doing, I would have to answer. I opened the door and did nothing when the vermin began to crawl inside. First order of business. The king is dead, his own quote-unquote nephew, and Jamie wants to know why and how, or more accurately, why and how five Kingsguard were present and nothing could be done about it. Jamie asks if his brother is truly to blame, and the lickspittles of the group affirm the answer. Only Balon Swan seems to have some sense, saying it could have been anyone on the dais. Kettleblack blames the Septon, while Sir Loris points the finger at Sansa, above all saying, why flee if she was guilty, which feels a bit like Brienne projection to me. Whoever did it, Joffrey is dead, and the Iron Throne belongs to Tommen now. I mean for him to sit on it until his hair turns white and his teeth fall out, and not from poison. Jamie turns to Sir Burroughs, and this is where the fun begins. <laughs> he names Blount the Royal Taster, which gets some guffaws from his brothers. Blunt turns a beet red, probably because he will be eating a lot of them going forward. <laughs> I am no food taster. I am a knight of the Kingsguard. Sad to say you are. Cersei should never have stripped the man of his white cloak, but their father had only compounded the shame by restoring it. My sister had told me how readily you yielded my nephew to Tyrion's self-swords. You will find carrots and peas less threatening, I hope. When your sworn brothers are training in the yard with sword and shield, you may train with spoon and trencher. Tommen loves apple cakes. Try not to let any sellswords make off with them. 
Boros responds with all the appropriate bluster, hurling Eris and Cripple at Jamie and grasping for his sword. Jamie parries back with a quip and a smile, eventually cowing Sir Boros and dismissing him. Hey Jamie, maybe you are the smiling knight, just in a slightly different way. But Jamie knows his bravado is just that. Blount would probably hack him to pieces in combat. They feared the man I was. The man I am they'd pity. Sir Osmond, I do not know you. I find that curious. I fought in tourneys, melees, and battles throughout the Seven Kingdoms. I know of every hedge knight, free rider, and upjump squire of any skill who has ever presumed to bring a lance in the list. So how is it that I have never heard of you, Sir Osmond? Where have you served before my sister found you? Here and there, my lord. I've been to Old Town in the south and Winterfell in the north. I've been to Lannisport in the west and King's Landing in the east, but I have never been to here, nor there. For want of a finger, Jamie pointed his stump at Sir Osmond's beak of a nose. I will ask you once more, where have you served? Sir Osmond cops to being a sellsword, primarily in the Stepstones and the Disputed Lands, and he was knighted by Sir Robert Schmuck or something like that. <laughs> Jamie is incredulous at this backstory, but paid soldiers know how to fight, so eh, whatever. He dismisses Sir Osmond and moves on to the real piece of shit of the septet. Sir Marin. Jamie smiled at the sour knight with the rust-red hair and the pouches under his eyes. I've heard it said that Joffrey made use of you to chastise Sansa Stark. He turned the white book around one-handed. Here, show me where it is in our vows that we swear to beat women and children. I did as his grace commanded me. We are sworn to obey. Henceforth you will temper that obedience. My sister is queen regent. My father is the king's hand. I am lord commander of the king's guard. Obey us, none other. Sir Marin got a stubborn look on his face. Are you telling us to not obey the king? The king is eight. Our first duty is to protect him, which includes protecting him from himself. Use that ugly thing you keep inside your helm. If Tommen wants you to saddle his horse, obey him. If he tells you to kill his horse, come to me. With Trant dismissed, Jamie turns to Sir Balon Swan, maybe the only one of the bunch Jamie actually respects. Like a good manager giving out a positive review, he starts with Swan's strengths and accomplishments in the last year before getting to his negative feedback. What the fuck is up with your family, man? <laughs> it seems like they will fight for just about any and every side of this war. When pressed on his loyalties, Swan gives the cheeky, though earnest, response that he will not follow in his Lord Commander's footsteps, which amuses Jamie enough to dismiss him as well. And then he was alone with the Knight of Flowers, slim as a sword, lithe and fit. Sir Loris Tyrell wore a snowy linen tunic and white wool breeches, with a gold belt around his waist and a gold rose clasping his fine silk cloak. His hair was a soft brown tumble, and his eyes were brown as well, and bright with insolence. He thinks this is attorney, and his tilt has just been called. Seventeen and a knight of the Kingsguard, said Jamie. You must be proud. Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight was seventeen when he was named. Did you know that? Yes, my lord. And did you know that I was fifteen? That as well, my lord. He smiled. Jamie hated that smile. I was better than you, Sir Loris. I was bigger, I was stronger, and I was quicker. And now you're older, the boy said. My lord. Older and wiser, sir. You should learn from me. As you learn from Sir Boros and Sir Marin. That arrow hit too close to the mark. I learned from the white bull and Barristan the bold, Jamie snapped. I learned from Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning who could have slain all five of you with his left hand while he was taking a piss with the right. 
I learned from Prince Lewin of Dorne and Sir Oswell Went and Sir Jonathan Derry. Good men, everyone. Dead men, everyone. In a Wonder Years-esque moment of internal monologue, Jamie realizes he's talking into a mirror, the reflection of his younger self. And this reflection is rising to every blow and thrust Jamie's tongue has to offer. Trying a different tact, he gets the truth of the Blackwater and Renly's ghost out of Sir Loris. Loris admits it was Garland in the armor, Loris being a bit too small to pull off the deception. A deception devised by Littlefinger, by the way. Well, you gave the singer something to make rhymes about. I suppose that's not to be despised. What did you do with Renly? I buried him with my own hands, in a place he showed me once when I was a squire at Storm's End. No one shall ever find him there to disturb his rest. He looked at Jamie defiantly. I will defend King Tommen with all my strength, I swear it. I will give my life for his if need me. But I will never betray Renly, by word or deed. He was the king that should have been. He was the best of them. For all that Jamie wants to clap back, he restrains himself. First time for everything. The boy is brash but sincere. Perhaps getting him into an honest state of mind was what Jamie wanted before broaching the final topic. Brienne of Tarth. Jamie presses Loras on her fate, who demands a black cell or even death for her crimes. Even if she hadn't killed Renly, she was there when he died, which makes her just as culpable, according to the Knight of Flowers, her and all the men guarding Renly that night. If it wasn't them, how else could he have been killed? Jamie luckily has a great counterfactual to refute Loras. The Purple Wedding. Ever heard of it? <laughs> Five of you were there, and the king died all the same. Brienne grieves for Renly, Jamie insists, in a way Jamie never once did for Eris. Jamie negs her for her looks and stubbornness. I mean, is it a Jamie a Storm of Swords chapter without that? <laughs> but she is loyal and she is true, and hell, she got me back to King's Landing in mostly one piece. Draw your sword, Sir Loras. Show me how you'd fight a shadow. I should like to see that. Sir Loras made no move to rise. She fled, he said. She and Catelyn Stark... They left him in his blood and ran. Why would they, if it was not their work? He stared at the table. Renly gave me the van. Otherwise, it would have been me helping him don his armor. He often entrusted that task to me. We had, we had prayed together that night. I left him with her. Sir Parman and Sir Ammon were guarding the tent, and Sir Robar Royce was there as well. Sir Ammon swore Brienne had, although... Yes, Jamie prompted, sensing a doubt. The gorget was cut through, one clean stroke, through a steel gorget. Renly's armor was the best, the finest steel. How could she do that? I tried myself, and it was not possible. She's freakish strong for a woman, but even the mountain would have needed a heavy axe. And why armor him and then cut his throat? He gave Jamie a confused look. If not her, though, how could it be a shadow? Ask her. Jamie came to a decision. Go to her cell. Ask your questions and hear her answers. If you are still convinced that she murdered Lord Renly, I will see that she answers for it. The choice will be yours. Accuse her or release her. All I ask is that you judge her fairly, on your honor as a knight. Loris assents and rises to leave, but not before dropping a bombshell. Renly didn't care for Brienne that much. He found her absurd, grotesque, things that would absolutely tear Brienne up to hear. When I saw him all bloody, with her fled and the three of them unharmed, if she's innocent, then Robar and Ammon, he could not seem to say the words. 
Jamie had not stopped to consider that aspect of it. I would have done the same, sir. The lie came easy, but Sir Loris seemed grateful for it. And then it's just Jamie alone, left with a brotherhood of thoughts. He should avenge Joffrey. He should kill Sir Burroughs. He should fuck his sister. He should have a golden hand. His hand could wait, though. There were other things to tend to first. There were other debts to pay. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 8. What did you think, sir? So in a lot of ways, this chapter breaks the pattern for Jamie. No Brienne, for one thing, which is a big deal. This is the only Jamie chapter in the book in which Brienne doesn't show up. Nor do we see any of his other family members that the last Jamie chapter focused on, just his fellow Kingsguard. And we're no longer wandering around from place to place, which is what uh, we were doing with a lot of Jamie earlier in the book. This is a whole chapter that takes place in one room. It's a very theatrical setup. You can imagine it on a stage. It reminds me of the, the Davos chapters set around the painted table on Dragonstone. Nothing super vital to the plot happens here, unlike the next Jamie chapter, which sets up like half a dozen storylines for the next couple books. So many things this chapter is not about. Also, George can focus like a laser on character, which is what this chapter is about, throwing characters at each other to see what they make of each other. It's such an efficient, concise chapter, just one conversation after another as Jamie pries apart his fellow Kingsguard. And yet, we arguably learn more about him than we do about any of them. Yeah, what staggers me about this chapter is just how perfectly it distills Jamie's character and how well it paces both his journey and this last act of A Storm of Swords. On that latter bit, we're coming off Tyrion's trial, and in our immediate future is Sansa's journey to the Vale, the rest of Tyrion's trial, including Oberyn vs. the Mountain, and the ongoing battle at the Wall building to Stannis' arrival. That is to say, some pretty explosive stuff. This chapter almost almost acts as a breath in between all that, allowing the reader to rest up for the big stuff while giving us a rich and robust look into Jamie Lannister. As you say, there's no Brienne, there's no Lannisters, this chapter is squarely about Jamie. If he were Jean Valjean, this is his performance of Who Am I, a phrase he echoes at the chapter's end, What Am I? George is able to use the other Kingsguard as comparison points to the Kingslayer, allowing him to triangulate around his brothers as Jamie reflects on his own career as a knight and Kingsguard. I want to note here that this inspection into Jamie, at the hinge of his own arc, after his crucible but before his Golden Hand era, is expertly placed. It means so much more to the reader and rereader to spend time with Jamie's memories in the Kingswood here, after we have already spent significant time with Jamie and seen all sides of his interiority. So we make our first ever visit to the White Sword Tower in Jamie 8, the barracks and command center for the Westerosi Kingsguard. It's all white everything. In the white tower sits a white book on a white table in a white room, all to match the white cloaks of the seven Kingsguard, and probably their skin tones too, more or less. The invocation of seven, an auspicious and often lucky number, fused with the color white, often symbolizing purity in Western literature, with all the racial pitfalls that come with it, speak to a self-mythologizing aspect of the Kingsguard. They are supposed to be the best, purest, most honorable of all, with the full backing of gods and men and kings. George is deliberately setting these pins up so that he can knock them down when the actual unimpressive lot of the Kingsguard starts rolling in. The disconnect between legend and reality takes center stage. You can feel the tension there, that all that white is an expression of humility. It goes hand in hand with the uh, the tower that George describes as slender, very kind of it doesn't stand out like the red the rest of the Red Keep. Uh, he describes the bedrooms as spare. He describes them as sleeping cells, almost like this is a prison. 
But this is one of those expressions of humility that is so ostentatious and over the top that it becomes its own form of arrogance. We're the most humble. It makes me think about uh, what Thoreau said about R'hllor in that Arya chapter earlier in the book when they were staying with those uh, those uh, uh, brothers, the members of the faith. Uh, one of whom said, hey, you can't can't pray to your foreign god under our roof. Lem got really mad about it, and Thoreau says, hey, it's okay. The sun will not cease to shine if we miss a prayer or two. Like, that's genuine humility. That's someone who's been through the gauntlet, been through the fire, literally and otherwise, <laughs> and has a, just a clear understanding of what really matters. And, and he has a clear distinction between when you're contributing and when it's just ego, when you're just kind of... Uh, brushing yourself up and that's what we see here this is overcompensation the kingsguard have to present themselves as the idealized incarnation of chivalry to cover up the fact that they're just people and i brought up thoros because i think there is a a religious subtext to this chapter Mm -hmm. like you said the the backing of the gods we have purged ourselves of sin and we know that's not true about jamie (laughs) and about the other kingsguard just in different ways so this chapter's all-white aesthetic as it goes along starts to feel like a parody like it's a joke on knighthood itself the Knights of the Kingsguard don't live up to this imagery any more than the Lords of Westeros actually are the animals on their sigils. That uh, line from Illyria we both like in Dance, where he's like, you Westeros, you all think you actually are lions or eagles or dragons, but if I, I put you in a cage with one, you'd know the difference real quick. So far in Jamie's story, we've seen this, this question of, of who he is, like you said, and who he is specifically when you, when you take his power away, when you make him a prisoner, when you cut off his sword hand, sword hand when you make him aware that uh, a lot of things in his life, the things he likes and the things he uh, doesn't, weren't because of choices he made. And so now we're seeing, now that he's home, not really home, now that he's back, let's say, <laughs> uh, now that's being applied to the Kingsguard as an institution. Who are they when you peel back the, the white cloaks and the white walls and the white tower and the white book? Well, you have the most unimpressive seven ever seen. That's what I'll say. And perhaps <laughs> the, the worst most... <laughs> lineup in baseball history. <laughs> most of all, because they're not even fielding nine, right? They just have two empty positions. They don't positions even know what's field. going on out there. <laughs> and perhaps the most unimpressive of this Kingsguard is Jamie Lannister, our good old point of view for today. Maybe not unimpressive, but whom the disconnect between the public perception perception thereof from the actual guy, both before and after the whole heiress business is the most pronounced. And given his potential, his skill at arms, his familial name, Jamie should be one of the revered greats like Barristan and Arthur Dane, and not the reviled pariah that he is. This is where I feel the institutional Kingsguard imagery really serves Jamie, this quote-unquote soil knight, because you can perfectly picture that Lannister piss gold color staining the white cloak he wears. And that disconnect is made manifest in Jamie's own interiority, as he readily admits, nothing here fits. Yes, in a very literal sense, his Kingsguard gear hangs too loose, but also he has to learn to draw and fight with his other hand. He has few great deeds written in the White Book, and if he's Lord Commander, then he's Lord Commander of perhaps the shittiest seven the kingdoms have seen yet. How can he share the same seat as Barristan and the White Bull and all those other greats before him? And after Jamie Seven, he no longer feels like a part of his family, as his father wants nothing to do with him and his sister has no time for him. He even comments about how no one knew who he was at Tyrion's court date. He's a stranger in his own house as much as he's a stranger to the Lord Commander's seat at the White Table. Yeah, that's a very telling moment, because aren't the Kingsguards supposed to be strangers in their own houses <laughs> mm-hmm. after they join? Like, isn't that kind of the whole idea, that you leave that behind and you're not loyal to the old families and factions and you're just about the king? But... The gods fashioned us for love, as Maester Raymond said, and something I like that keeps coming up in the series is that uh, if you actually go through with that, if you become kind of like a duty robot, that's not actually inspiring either. That's kind of creepy and off-putting. There's a, 
a bit I really like from from Varus when uh, Tyrion's talking to him about Mandon Moore, trying to get information about the guy after the Blackwater. And Varus says, Sir Barristan was once heard to say that the man had no friend but his sword and no life but duty. But you know, I do not think Selmy meant it altogether as praise. Which is queer when you consider it, is it not? Those are the very qualities we seek in our king's guard, it could be said. Men who live not for themselves, but for their king. By those lights, our brave Sir Mandon was the perfect white knight. But the problem is, Sir Mandon went so far that he didn't really seem to even have a personality anymore, and no one <laughs> likes that. And the, it's, as Jamie himself said, it's too much. It's, it's not even that living up to the image of the perfect knight is difficult. It's impossible, because the image is contradictory. Even being that ideal makes you so removed from human experience that people can't relate to you anymore. All through these Jamie chapters, George is critiquing not only the ideal, but the values that surround the ideal, which we saw going back to the last book when he talked with Catelyn in his cell. Is this really how we want people to be? Does, does Catelyn and the people who think like Catelyn, do they really understand goodness and justice and evil as much as they think they do? Yeah. Obey the king, obey your father, protect the innocent. But what happens when your father tells you to kill the king and stuff like that? We've been through all this. Well, that can't happen. That's illegal. (laughs) So not only does Jamie feel like he doesn't belong, but what exactly did he do to earn this? His promotion to Lord (laughs) Commander, which includes getting the keys to the penthouse of White Sword Tower with its beautiful ocean view, came during a battlefield loss at the Whispering Woods, a long period of captivity, and then the loss of his hand. If there is a meritocracy in Westeros, Jamie's career is furthest from it. Yeah, he's only there because Cersei appointed him in absentia. And if like if Jamie had had the choice at the time, he probably would have refused. It's uh, only going through the gauntlet of his journey prepared him for this, which is ironic given that those same changes are leading Cersei to reject him. That's it made him more worthy of the job she got him for, but she doesn't like him that way. And yeah, I love the bit when he thinks to himself that he'll, he'll like the view and everything else. The description of that kind of that sparse, open kind of room with a view of the view of the sea. It makes me think of that bit in, in Michael Mann's Heat when Robert De Niro's criminal gets home and he's just looking out at the ocean. There's that shot that was inspired by a painting, Pacific by Alex Colville, really great painting of just like the gun on the table in the foreground, guy looking out at the ocean in the background. That's what I think about Jamie uh, up in his, his, his white tower rooms. Um, and yeah, I like that he just says, I like the view and everything else. And I like that George doesn't follow it up and kind of leaves it mysterious. Like, is what is what is exactly Jamie getting out of it? Like, you can think maybe he's enjoying uh, having honor for once or trying to have honor. Maybe he likes maybe he likes sitting in the same chair Barristan did. Maybe he gets a perverse thrill out of that. There's a lot of things you can think he enjoys. I like that George doesn't really in that moment make it specific. Yeah, the uh, the seaside view also makes me think a little bit of Andy Dufresne um, after his period in captivity. It's just Absolutely. like, it'd be nice to see some sun and clouds and water every day. So Getting out of jail imagery, that is what the ocean view yeah, mm-hmm. is always shorthand for. That's true. I also want to call out a bit of Arthuriana in the imagery here. Knights of the Shield Table has its own nice ring to it, and Sir Loras might as well be a Lancelot type. Though even I, Jamie Lannister's number one fan, wouldn't <laughs> call him a King Arthur analog. What I will say is Jamie's character, his sense of identity, and his actual struggle between duty and love mirrors that of Jon Snow, our story's actual King Arthur analog. In much the same way that Stannis is a blueprint for Daenerys, I see the same for Jamie and Jon. Jamie will even talk about not the brothers he chose, but the brother he has, which echoes Jon's sentiments up north as well. Yep, great line. Reminds me of the line I love from the, the movie Rio Bravo, when the mm-hmm. John Wayne's defending the town with just his, his crew of, of miscreants and drunks and old guys, and one of his old older rich friends comes to town and says, uh, 
that's all you got? And John Wager looks at him and says, that's what I've got. And that, that <laughs> distinction right there, I think, is, yeah, what both Jamie and John are dealing with. And yeah, definitely a, definitely a riff on the round table here. I think you can you can compare Jamie's relationship to Cersei, to uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, in mm-hmm, terms of the, mm-hmm. the taboo relationship between the knight and the queen. Not incestuous in Lancelot and Guinevere's case, that's just George's extra twist. But uh, in terms of uh, Arthur comparisons, yeah, the, the big difference is that there's there's no Arthur. <laughs> there's no there's no great guy worthy of following. You can all build everything around. You have this this child king who's not even present. Uh, so there's no so there's the shell game, the Varus shadow on a wall thing, where they mm-hmm, have to instead mm-hmm. of just pointing to Arthur and saying, "Look, that's why we're in charge." Uh, Jamie and everyone else here has to constantly justify their power and find ways of doing that. The tension between duty and love, serving and family is made manifest in the pages of the White Book, as each page is denoted by the knight's heraldry in one corner and a blank white shield in the opposite. Here now, the usage of white symbolizes all the color of a knight's sigils drained out, so that only loyalty to the crown remains. You can see how the black motif works the same way for the Night's Watch at the other end of the continent. Two groups in conversation with each other, especially as the Kingsguard vows were lifted from that of the Watch. The White Book is also another way in which George is able to refract character back at us, such as with Barristan Selmy, who just properly returned to our narrative in the last Daenerys chapter. Barristan finishing up his personal entry after he has been dismissed while being hunted is perhaps the coolest thing Barristan has ever done. He should have put that in the book, too. Completed my entry while under attack. (laughs) It gets very meta there. Ended entry by referencing writing of entry. (laughs) And Jamie even notices Selmy's fine penmanship because, of course, Barristan has fine handwriting. All this little character work serves doubly, both for establishing the context and precedence of Jamie's turn as Lord Commander, while also re-establishing Barristan as his part in our saga begins to expand over on the other side of the world. Yeah, I love that bit with Barristan's entry. Like, think about that. Like, put yourself in that room at that moment. Like, this dude has every reason in the world to finally get cynical about his job, and still he had to conduct his own exit interview, because otherwise, like, he knew he would be up nights when he got across the narrow sea, like, thinking, oh, I've left the book unfinished. Gerald Hightower's ghost is so mad at me. Uh, but it gets to what you're saying about the the, the heraldry and the, the specific shields and then the, the white shields that are all, all the same. It's, it feels almost like vampiric, like all the life is, mm-hmm. the blood is getting sucked out of you. And like it goes back to what I was saying earlier about Mandon Moore. Like the ideal is that you're supposed to make the Kingsguard kind of its own personality. You're not supposed to be nothing. You're supposed to like this is its own family. This is its own reason for being. Like the same way Mormont uh, talked about uh, J.C. Mormont, Elsie Mormont talked about mm. uh, the Night's Watch. We're all you know we're all one house up here. But the thing is like. The reason Barristan stands out is because he's the only dude who's ever actually pulled that off, who's who's actually made the Kingsguard his own personality and one that people love. Like, there's only a handful of guys that have actually done that. That's why they're the legends. And part of uh, Barristan's blind spots is he doesn't he doesn't really seem to realize how unique he is and that he can't just assume everyone's going to be that way or make those choices. And uh, part of the reasons I like his dance chapters is you see him start to... I think he's still making mistakes, but he starts to get outside his own head a little bit in the same way that Jamie does here. Barristan's extended biography is immediately juxtaposed to Jamie's brief one, barely a paragraph long, and if Jamie were to update it, he'd mostly be posting his own L's at the Whispering Wood and whatnot. (laughs) Jamie laments about his unrecorded tourney wins, mostly to fluff up his page more than anything else, but it's the skirmishes with the Kingswood Brotherhood that rush to mind. You can feel how that moment was a high point for Jamie, where his devotion to a martial life and belief in chivalry were at its peak. 
a young man blessed with skill, fighting alongside the greatest knights of his generation, saving a lord's life, standing toe-to-toe with fierce enemies, and suppressing a quote-unquote threat to the realm. It's what young boys' dreams are made of. Jamie admits it may have been the naivety of youth with which he remembers all that so fondly, though he probably also isn't wrong that in terms of reputation and prestige, that Kingsguard was leaps and bounds ahead of the one he's part of now. Well, you know, if you ignore the Kingsguard relationship with Aerys Targaryen. <laughs> if you ignore the whole everything about what they were doing. <laughs> and this is where we get some of the most memorable Jamie passages in all these books. The one about the Smiling Knight and Sir Arthur Dane. When I say this chapter is George laying out the thesis of Jamie Lannister, that perfect distillation of his character into words, this is it. Chivalry and cruelty all jumbled up together. Has been Jamie's life so far, with the cruel irony that his most chivalrous, or at least morally utilitarian act, is the one for which he is reviled. And that dialectic Jamie proposes, between Arthur Dane and the uh, smiling knight at opposite ends, and the boy who wished to be the former but wound up the latter instead, is yet another perfect triangulation of Jamie's character, and another internal tension to mimic duty and love and family and honor that I mentioned earlier. In this chapter, and Jamie's next, he is searching for who he is, what he is, and what he still can be with all this power, but less a fighting hand. Catharsis and Crucible are over, as we discussed at length since Jamie 5. He's killed the boy, and now the man must be born. I love that we get this great vivid flashback of Jamie to Arthur Dane in The Smiling Knight, and he thinks about how much better it was back then. But he has uh, he has enough self-awareness to realize it might just be that I was 15. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, who knows if he's even accurately remembering that scene? Like, the, the dialogue between Arthur Dane and The Smiling Knight is so, like, arch. Like, it's that white sword of yours I want, then you shall have it, sir. And the same way George has said about uh, Ned's dream, about Arthur Dane and those other guys, how it might not have really actually been what happened jamie might be mythologizing this without even really realizing it like just in the moment how you know intense and fevered he was and all that those adolescent hormones he is self-aware enough to know that he he can't there's no neutral aesthetic for him on what happened back then and he's gonna always always see it through rose-colored glasses especially because he knows what happens next (laughs) which is always gonna color everything Nostalgia is a big subject of the series, not only for Jamie, but for his entire generation, everyone in the Roberts Rebellion generation, which is one of my favorite parts of the story, that we, we keep meeting people from this age group who are obsessed with the past. And it's very relatable. It's, it's a good hook. It's an emotional way into a, a fantasy universe for readers who might not be into it or, or just need a, need a way in beyond backstory and you know character, uh, character names. We all know these people, or we are these people, aging into our 30s and 40s and looking back at our 20s. Robert talking about gods, I was strong then. John Connington's obsession with Rhaegar, his silver prince. Barbie Dustin's obsession with, with Brandon Stark of the Big Dick. Even, <laughs> even Ned, who I think generally has a more clear-eyed view on how horrible that time actually was to live through. Uh, even Ned says, like, yeah, the Kingsguard used to be used to be the greatest knights in the world. And he's, he's describing the ones who were the Mad Kingsguards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're all overstating the case because... Uh, there's that great bit in uh, Watchmen when the older older Silk Spectre and Watchmen has that same kind of generational like what's going to happen what happened to us older guys is about to happen to you younger guys thing. Uh, the older Silk Spectre says to her daughter the the younger Silk Spectre and Watch and Watchmen that you know the the present gets gets dimmer and dimmer but the past the past gets brighter all the time and that's that's what's happening here. Like the reality is that Ares is Kingsguard whatever their individual accomplishments and reputations and big set pieces like taking down the Smiling Knight. 
They all stood by and did nothing while he descended into madness. And that really was the main part of their job that they were doing wrong there. <laughs> Everything else, like, okay, the Kingsguard are allowed to lead armies and do stuff, but the main thing is dealing with the king. Like, Jamie thinks about Arthur Dane, but where was he when Jamie was forced into that impossible position? He was down in Dorne. Like, Jamie thinks he is the reason the Kingsguard have fallen to such a state. That's how I'd have to explain myself to, to Arthur Dane's soul. And I get that, like, emotionally that feels true to him, that, like, I, I broke the Kingsguard and now it's it's fallen. But, like, literally speaking, no, Jamie, you weren't Lord Commander when Boros Blount and, and Marin Trant and Mandon Moore were appointed. That was Barristan. Barristan the Bold, one of the men Jamie compares himself to and thinks he falls short. Nor did Jamie pick Osmond Kettleblack. That was Cersei. It's not the king's slang that broke the king's guard. It's the reality that no one is pure and perfect. And then you combine that with the Game of Thrones, it means your opportunities for corruption are basically nonstop. And when I think, you know, Jamie flashing back to what happened and thinking about, uh, maybe it was just that I was 15, you know the same thing is going to happen to the next generation. John and Sansa and Arya, they're mm-hmm. going gonna to be looking back in the past and they're going to be reading the narratives of their own lives. They're going to remember what was left out. And they're never going to know whether it's it's really true or whether they've just mythology and time have just amplified it to that degree yeah jamie focusing on these past mistakes and all the ways that things have gone wrong actually reminds me a bit of the end of metal gear solid 2 where a lot of the mysteries of the story begin unraveling when the series hero solid snake reveals himself and the player protagonist raiden himself a blank white sheet of paper asks snake what he is fighting for to which snake replies a future you can stop being part of a mistake starting now Find something to believe in and find it for yourself. And when you do, pass it on to the future. Believe in what? Replies Raiden. That's your problem. Jamie can stop being the smiling knight right now. He can write a new story for himself. Quite literally. All the discussion of white symbology now adds another layer. It represents a blank canvas, a chance to be something new. And really, that's all Jamie can be now. He is not the man he was in the Riverlands earlier in this book, nor is he the man he was before that. So who is he now? And with that, in pours his remaining brothers, save Eris Orc- Oakheart down in Doran, playing out his own soiled knight arc for the nonce. Yeah, exactly. He's got like the, the most pathetic version of the Jamie Barriston story. <laughs> womp yes. womp. He's uh, doing the speed run of Jamie's arc all in one chapter. <laughs> one basically. POV chapter. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's pomp and custom here, too, as the Kingsguard must first vouch for the safety of the king before they can dive into the meeting minutes. A bit of irony in the Kingslayer becoming being the one to lead this, and also that it's his bastard son with no real claim to the throne who is sitting as king. Right? Slightly awkward. And yeah, that's a great point. There's this the great tension here of the, the formal language versus these, these unspoken truths that Boros Blount is the only one who even comes close to bringing them up. Uh, for all that is said aloud in this chapter, it's a very talky chapter. It's, there's a, even more going unsaid. No one is bringing up the twin cyst. Uh, only Boros is bringing up the king slaying. Uh, you know, they get a little bit into Tyrion, but they, they get off track of that quickly. A lot more that's not being brought up. Yeah, I'm even thinking to the final conversation with Sir Loras, where Sir Loras kind of just ellipses off and doesn't say the thing, but Jamie like immediately understands what Sir Loras is getting at. True. Um, it's very good how the unspoken is as powerful as the spoken in this chapter. He uh, literally does not tell Jamie where he buried Renly. It's like, we're going to leave that to... Mm-hmm. Lor- only Loras will know. It's not even the reader gets to know. And for all the tensions in this chapter that reflect back on Jamie, we can add one more as the tension between the old and new members of the Kingsguard who seat themselves according to this divide at the table. Though perhaps a spectrum is more accurate to describe this seven, ranging from Sir Loris, literally the greatest, to Boros Blount, 
literally the worst, with Swan and Trant somewhere in between. Swan closer to the good side and Trant firmly on the bad side. <laughs> the kettle black is the question mark. Charitably, Jamie thinks, who the fuck is this? <laughs> the uncertainty of kettle black allegiances with intertwining plots with the brothers as they work for Littlefinger and or Cersei will rise to the fore in A Feast for Crows and even our next chapter in A Storm of Swords. Sir Arthur Dane clearly lives rent-free in Jamie's head, as we could assume from all the previous chapters, but as Jamie looks at his assembled brothers, he can only lament how the Sword of Mourning would judge them, and in turn judge Jamie, who began the downward turn. There's further discussion of Joffrey's poison and the true murderer, as Jamie is still trying to feel out the truth and his brother's guilt. The mystery has yet to be fully explained to the reader, so this all works nicely with the show trial of the previous chapter, especially when the same Kingsguard who testified against Tyrion are far less convincing in the smaller claims court Jamie is running, and then of course the final bit of the mystery will be revealed in the next chapter we cover next time out. I like that comparison to, to Tyrion's trial, because yes, even though this is obviously on a much smaller scale, it is still a public performance on Jamie's part. Like, he is not only here to whip the Kingsguard into shape, he's here to convince them that he's worth following, because as much as, as, much as he's denigrating them, like you say, as he admits to himself and uh, the ghost of Arthur Dane, he's, he's down there in, the, in the, the bad side of the, the White Book along with any of them. He's the Kingslayer, and also he just lost a hand, and he's very aware throughout this chapter that, like he says about Boris Blount, who is the weakest fighter besides him on the Kingsguard, but Boris Blount could still kick his ass. And it's in, in terms of this as a public performance, I think when I was reading this, it's interesting to think about the order he goes in. Because this chapter would be so different if he met with them one-on-one, -on -one, and we were seeing individual interviews with each knight. He would have different strategies. Instead, all the rest are seeing how he treats each one, how he handles the, the various social and political fault lines among them. But also, each one of them leaves the room after he's done with them. So the, the order is a question of which confrontations he wants to be public and to what degree. Yeah, and I think that's a great place where we can start running down each of the individual Kingsguard as he dresses them down. Yes, indeed. Um, and this is great because anytime there's like a list or a checklist in a chapter of A Song of Ice and Fire, you know Emmett's going to have a lot to say about each one of those things. It's like all the sigils in Tyrion 5. It's a very um, easy structure. Just George yeah. gives me a nice little checklist. Just and go, go down it. I had so much fun with it in the recap. That's why I had to, you know, do a little bit of each conversation. But this is definitely your, your time to shine, sir. So <laughs> we'll start with uh, Boros the Taster, who, you know, Cersei stripped him of the Kingsguard and Tywin put him back. And I feel like this is Jamie learning to use his voice and more the threat of violence and his own reputation to cow Boros. Boros is a craven and a sot, and Jamie having the right read on him is why Jamie's able to hold his ground. Jamie may have his faults, but he is pretty good at reading people, which we've learned throughout this book, and which is also just one reason I enjoy his chapter so much. I'd honestly love to go people watching with Jamie at a Paris cafe. The, the ideal setting for Jamie's bitchiness, exactly. Yes. <laughs> that would be great. So yeah, I was talking about the order, and so Jamie starts with Boros Blant, and I think it's clear why. He's, he's at the bottom of the totem pole. He's not the, the worst, he's not the most dangerous member of the team, that's Marin Tran. But Boros is the most incompetent and the most pathetic. He's the one everyone knows shouldn't be there at all. Jamie starts with him because he's an easy target, and he wants everyone else to see him take Boros down a peg. And it works. We see Osmond laugh. We see Loras smile. But it's also a warning. It's a shot across the bow for the rest of them. If you, if you ever get this bad, Boros Blount level bad, <laughs> if you fail in your duties, I will humiliate you in front of the rest. I will dismantle your self-conception as a knight. I'll make you the food taster. 
which ironically might actually be a more dangerous job than bodyguard, <laughs> especially with the sand snakes coming to town. But of course, there's no there's no bravado to it, no chivalry. That that image is stripped away, and you're just embarrassed. And uh, Boros zeroes in on the hypocrisy here. Oh, how how dare you condemn me for giving up Tommen when you killed Eris? Well, those are very different crimes, as Jamie says later. And the reader, of course, knows Jamie had good reason to kill Eris, that it was a heroic act. But even putting that aside, there was a there was a drama and intensity to it that just isn't there with Boros Blount handing over Tommen, like bright, smiling little Tommen, who guarantee, I guarantee Tommen had no clue what was happening. <laughs> it was like, oh, hello, new friends. Do you like cats? You better not have beats. Uh, like, that's not just an abdication of duty. It's pathetic. And like what, what Jamie is really telling Boros here is you made us look bad. So I have to reflect that. I have to be seen putting you down so everyone gets that you don't represent the Kingsguard anymore. <laughs> And I like that Jamie thinks that both both firing and rehiring Boros were both mistakes because they both ate away at the Kingsguard's legitimacy. Like firing firing Boros is bad because you're you're not supposed to just kick a guy off the Kingsguard like he should have been sent to the wall or something mm-hmm. because that would have prevented what Tywin does, which is just putting him back, which is a, a classic representative Tywin move that shows he's not really thinking things through as much as he should be because... Boris Blount doesn't belong here, and you haven't actually solved Cersei's embarrassing mistake by putting him back. You've just made another mistake. You just have a new problem. The Lannisters are just feeding on each other's mistakes at this point. And that's what's kind of building under the surface of this chapter, even as Jamie is only dealing with the Kingsguard, is this condemnation of his family. Like those sellswords that they're talking about that took Tommen away from Boros, Tyrion was the one who sent those. All these power plays speak to the reality that they are not, in fact, all pure of heart. There are lies involved. There's this, this projection of power. But in a way, even though that seems unknightly, certainly what Barristan thinks about politics, uh, the Lord Commander is actually there to do more than fight. The Lord Commander is supposed to be a politician, like you're supposed to be an advisor to the king. You're supposed to lead armies, which is a political act because you have to keep a bunch of people together. Barristan doesn't really want to admit that to himself, but it's a reality that Jamie is now kind of taking advantage of. He's establishing this this standard to be met, and he's he's uh, cementing that standard for the rest by by picking on Boros first, and he's he's getting around his own obstacles in the process because I think he's glad that that he's dealing with a coward first, so no one else is going to come up with the idea of fighting Jamie. So next up is the big question mark: Sir Osmond Kettleblack. Kettleblack feels like all the worst personality bits of the old Jamie, <laughs> yeah. sly and laughing at a joke that only he knows of. Theon, is that you? Jamie is not really into talking to this guy, but but he surmises he knows how to use that sword of his, so he just dismisses him as well after a short conversation. All right, so order of operations. Why Kettleblock next? Why not Marin Trant? Like, that would seem to logically flow. Blount and Trant are always grouped together in the book as, as Joffrey's toadies who did whatever he said. Well, I think Jamie is just, once again, starting this off on easy mode. He wants the people he knows he can intimidate. Let's him vent his spleen a little bit before we get to the harder nuts to crack. Basically, JB is going through the Kingsguard in reverse order of mm-hmm. respect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why he started with Boros. Uh, Osman Kettleblack, though, he's a, he's a different kind of problem, almost the opposite problem from Boros. Boros is a coward who can barely fight and, more to the point, is not willing to fight. Kettleblack can fight pretty well, but that's about it. Boros is a knight who doesn't deserve his position. Osmond isn't a knight at all. Pretty clearly, right? Like, I love, I love that... Not only does he come up with his total bullshit fake name, Sir Robert Stone, but I love the ellipsis. He goes, Sir Robert uh, Stone. Like he hasn't even thought about it until this moment. <laughs> like he hasn't realized he might need a cover story for the obvious fact that he's not a knight. Like think about that in, in contrast with the other not a knights with Brienne or with Dunk in the backstory and how 
Even though they're not knights, paradoxically, they take it more seriously than anyone else because they're not part of it, because they want to actually live up to those standards because they've been kept outside. Osmond isn't a knight either, but none of that humility, none of that respect or earnestness. He's just he's just gliding through life, getting away with it. I love that he walk, walks out smiling, doesn't even think he got in trouble. <laughs> and in a way, he's right to think that because what is Jamie going to do? Jamie can't do anything. Cersei hired Osmond Kettleblack. Jamie's not really willing to start a fight about that. So Osmond is right to think he can basically not care what Jamie has to say. This is just a problem Jamie can't solve. Like he can make Boros plant the food taster, but I think moving to Kettleblack next, I think, leaves a little bit of more of a sour taste in your mouth. You realize, oh, Jamie didn't really solve that problem. He just kind of decided to deal with it. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to highlight Cersei in here, too, because if Cersei was going to make him a Kingsguard, she probably should have figured out if he was a knight or just had him made a knight, like officially by someone at court right then and there. There were so many people. Or, or just tell Joffrey him. Joffrey or Tommen could do it, right? Like, why not literally. reach up? Or just give him a backstory. Like, yes. settle on a story before you send him into the meeting with Jamie. And just the fact that they didn't think it through is so funny to me. They just didn't, because they didn't think it would matter. They didn't think anyone would ever call them on the sloppiness. And Jamie's starting to realize, man, they really, they thought so little of me that they thought I wouldn't care. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe to be fair, J- the old Jamie might not have cared. You make a great point. It's not, it's not <laughs> unfair. It's just Jamie realizing that all at once. It's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you'd think you some common fucking sense would not be earth shattering advice. <laughs> and yeah. But a- apparently Marin Trant needed to hear it. <laughs> Say what you will about the Lannister brothers, but Tyrion and Jaime both seem to be the only ones who are not fond of Joffrey having his child bride-to-be Sansa Stark beat in the throne room. Oh, and also Sandor Clegane, as I hear Chloe loading her sniper <laughs> rifle at that last comment. She's narrowing her eyes right now, and she doesn't <laughs> even know why. Yeah, Marin Trant. So this is, this is probably the most serious problem mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. the Kingsguard, in that he is just as violent as Boros Blount, but he's also clearly smarter, which means he's more of a problem. And yet, Jamie dispatches him quickly and efficiently. I was going back through the chapter. This is actually the shortest of all the conversations. Partially just because he gets right to the point. Hey, you beat up a preteen girl. That seems like kind of <laughs> shitty behavior, don't you think? Uh, and he specifically brings it back to the vows. Like, show me that in the vows. Show me where we swore to beat women and children. Which is an interesting way of looking at it. Because that's Jamie saying we should only do the things we have directly sworn to do. That this penumbra of obey the king doesn't actually cover everything that we should think more critically about what it what kind of person we're swearing to be when we say these words it opens up the question are we are we here to obey the spirit or the letter of the law or, or both somehow and uh, when what of course when Marin Trant says we, we swear to obey the king for Jamie that takes him right back to the mad king that was the only justification for the knights of Eris's Kingsguard is we swore to obey that guy who's burning people alive it tortured Jamie at the time but I love that here he's able to break it down so simply he's able to really justify himself really simply. We protect the king, including from himself. And that is that is a clarity I think he can ironically only achieve by applying it to others, by 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 giving it as an order to someone else. It reminds me of Davos that when he his explanation to Stannis of of uh, rescuing Edric Storm against Stannis's wishes, he said, Well I swore to protect your people and that included from you. Like I kept my vows actually by defying your orders. And, and uh, Jamie says, you have to make this distinction where understanding what makes an order worth following. And, he, you know, he says, you're allowed to use your head. Well, what he says is you're allowed to use that ugly helm you keep, that ugly thing you keep inside your helm. But you're allowed to use your brain and make a decision. And that actually works. Like Marin, he just says, okay, and walks out. Like as horrible as Marin Trant is, uh, that shows you Jamie understands how to control him in a way that he actually kind of didn't with Osmond Kettleblack. 
And I really like what you were saying about we protect the king, including from himself, because that feels like it's in conversation when a young Jamie asked about protecting the queen, uh-huh. and he was told by one of Aerys's Kingsguard, I forget which one, uh, that, you know, we, we protect her, but not from him. It's almost ironic that the one Kingsguard who, like, did the one thing he's not supposed to do has thought deeper about the vows that he's sworn, or maybe it's because he's the one who broke you know, his vow by killing the king, that he's actually interrogated what the vows mean more so than any of these greats. Like, Barristan Selmy, it doesn't seem like he really thought about it. He's just like, yep, that's my job, and I'm going to do it. Um, whereas Jamie has actually put some thought what it means to be a Kingsguard, because he almost has to, since he's a Kingsguard that killed the former king. That's true. He's been he's been tested in a way that, that none of these other men have. So Jamie doesn't have much negative to say about Balon Swan, who's been mostly a minor character so far, though appears to be due for some focus in the Winds of Winter down in Dorne. Jamie confronts Sir Balon with his own family's incoherent loyalties to the Five Kings, and who Swan will side with if his own family marches against this king. Jamie earlier mentioned the Dance of Dragons and Brother vs. Brother, which I think highlights how that specific part of the backstory was really starting to firm up in George's mind right around here, and may also be portending another dance with dragons between Daenerys and young Griff or Jon or whoever. Balon answers Jamie's inquiries with a bit of a joke, that if confronted with the impossible choice, he will not do as Jamie did. Jamie likes this answer, and you can sense a real sense of camaraderie here, or at least a bare minimum of respect. Someone Jamie has tilted with in the past, isn't a cruel lout, and who was raised in the institutions of Westerosi chivalry as opposed to being a sword for hire, even if that difference doesn't matter to the people at the end of those swords. Yeah, we get this great transition to the the relatively decent two. The relatively (laughs) decent two guys in the room. The two guys who you imagine would not have beaten Sansa Stark. And Balin especially, Balin Swan, you get the sense, is the only one of these guys Jamie would have picked himself if he'd been given a chance to reassemble his own Kingsguard after being made Lord Commander. Especially because there's just, he's, he's, Balin Swan's very appealing because he's very simple. Like, he's just, he's a good guy, he's honest, he's a strong fighter. He doesn't get lost in the, the tortured self-mythologizing of Jamie Lannister. And I get why Jamie does that, but I think what appeals to him about Balin Swan is here's a guy who's never had to do that. And I like that about you, even <laughs> though it means they don't have much in common. That's kind of, he's a, he's a knight that Arthur Dane would not have been ashamed of. So Jamie mm-hmm. approves of him for that reason. The problem with Balin Swan is not him. It's what happens when you put him in context, which we've already seen in the last chapter in Tyrion's trial, where he was honest and stood up for Tyrion and says, he's brave. I really don't think he did it. And then he had to, unfortunately, had to keep being honest about the stuff Tyrion did. So then when he got followed up with liars who were willing to exaggerate or make shit up, he got folded into that same narrative. So his goodness ended up being kind of irrelevant. It didn't end up helping the situation at all. And uh, Jamie kind of points that out to Balin here. Just, okay, you being a good guy, that might not be enough for you in this job. Because what are you going to do if your brother shows up, you know, with uh, king number 17 that he's joining and uh, walks in the room and threatens the king? And when Balin Swan just tries to dodge and says, that'll never happen, Jamie says, well, no, that's what happened to me. Which is partially true. (laughs) Of course, as we know, he's leaving out the nuke under the city that Eris was planning to blow up. But... You know, most people understand the King's Slang as having been driven by Jamie was choosing the Lannisters. He was choosing Tywin, mm-hmm. choosing his family over Eris. That's how most people interpret it. So in this moment, it works. It gets, it gets, it brings it home for Balin Swan. And I love his answer that I would not do as you did. Because that's, that's him very cleverly escaping the situation. Because he realizes I'm being asked to condemn you, the guy talking to me. Okay, I'll do that as politely as I can. And Jamie likes that. But what he's leaving unsaid is, okay, then what would you do? in the scenario Jamie is describing, and your brother is walking in the room ready to kill Tommen. 
what you're implying is you'd kill your brother in that scenario. But we leave it unspoken because I think the point isn't to say Balin would do that. The point is that he doesn't know and you can't because it's it's an impossible situation, what Jamie has just described. It's a no-win scenario where your your human heart and your duty have been brought into irreconcilable conflict with each other. And the reality about Jamie's Kingslaying too is there was no good answer that he just refused to see. And that I think he's he's in part kind of processing that by the way he talks to Balin Swan about this. Yeah, I like going through like the order in which, you know, he's going through these because as you brought up the trial from the previous chapter, Jamie's almost going in reverse order than Cersei had them brought yeah, up as witnesses. Good point. Um, so it's kind of like credibility in the other direction. Um, and also Balon Swan earlier in this chapter was the only one who didn't just agree that Tyrion clearly killed uh, Joffrey at the wedding. He was the one like, it could have been a lot of people. We don't really know. Um, so, you know, he's really earned himself and Jamie was present at Tyrion's trial. So he probably also heard Balon Swan talking about how how Tyrion's, you know, not really a terrible monster or anything like that. So he's already kind of predisposed <laughs> to liking this guy, I think. But the main event is Sir Loras Tyrell. Jamie spent a lot of this chapter thinking about his younger self in Salad Days, so it's appropriate this chapter climaxes with a figurative look in the mirror. Sir Loras is what Jamie was 20 years ago. The finest knight in the land, and everyone knew it. Sister to the most beautiful woman in the world and future queen. And so, so sure of himself, with a quick tongue and an even quicker draw. The burden of being too good, too young, as Jamie thinks. At first, they exchange barbs, climaxing with Sir Loris basically quoting Homer Simpson with, If they're so smart, how come they're dead? <laughs> but while Loris may have been who Jamie was, that isn't who Jamie is, or who Jamie is becoming. Jamie changes tact and prosecutes the mystery of Renly's ghost. In the end, despite all Loris's bluster, Jamie judges him true, both in his love for Renly and his duty to the crown now. It is possible to be full of shit, but also capable of doing your job, as Jamie knows all too well. That's that's ultimately what he has in common with Loris more than anything else. And yeah, main event, like you said, this is by far the longest section of the chapter. And yeah, back to the order of it, Loris is the one that Jamie wants all on his own. Jamie doesn't want anyone else to see this. In part because Loris is a threat, like both physically and politically, like Loris is the one Jamie has to be careful with. Mm -hmm. And it's also because Jamie wants to talk about Brienne, and I think he doesn't want anyone else to hear or see about that. He doesn't want anyone else to know how close they've gotten, because he doesn't trust the rest of them. He kind of has to with Loris at this point, because Loris is the one he uh, put Brienne in jail for, so they have to have this conversation, but doesn't want anyone else involved. And this is definitely a follow-up on that confrontation in the previous Jamie chapter, where Loris was this, this hothead who doesn't respect Jamie. And yet Jamie is the one who immediately loses his temper and composure mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. So maybe he, ugh, I mean, maybe he hasn't actually matured that much, or maybe he's just, it's not just that Loris is Jamie's young self, it's that Loris makes Jamie behave like his young self, and is kind of dragging him back down to immaturity with him. I mean, think about it. If Loris is young Jamie, then it's really telling how much Jamie resents Loris <laughs> and longs to wipe that smug shit-eating grin off his face. Like, that means Jamie hates himself. This isn't news exactly. We've seen plenty of evidence of that so far. But it's different here because he's projecting that self-loathing onto someone else. Like, he hated Brienne or he acted like he hated Brienne because of how different she was from him and from Cersei, the best people on planet Earth. But with Loris, it's like, oh, you're me and I hate that. I want to break that perfect face. That was mine. Jamie hates being reminded that he wasn't always this guy, a phantom whose clothes don't seem to fit, who's unwelcome in his family. Once he was a prodigy with a glorious future unfolding before him. And now Loris is the one with everything ahead of him, and he has no respect for Jamie. And it's a, a, a great, great concept you have, looking at your younger self, looking, looking back in a mirror at something uh, more perfect and beautiful. 
a lot of reference points for that. One that uh, jumped to mind was the the movie The World's End, the Edgar Wright movie, uh, like ten ish years ago, where where Simon Pegg's uh, uh, drunk uh, has been comes up with a, a comes up against a version of himself, an eerily perfect younger version of himself that he has to kind of project as a temptation. But Loris has more than youth over Jamie. He has uh, this perspective on the Kingsguard that he says, "Oh yeah, you learned so much that I should learn from you." But who'd you learn from, Sir Boros, Sir Marin, those guys? Like the way Loris is looking at it, it's just everything has progressively gotten worse. So there's nothing for me to gain from this place. I have to redeem the Kingsguard simply by being here. The Knight of Flowers, sheer perfection. The rest of you, you're the problem. <laughs> you're the you're the problem. I'm here to solve. I can't learn anything from you. You're gonna taint me. And uh, as Jamie says, that that hits a little too close to home. Not because it's true. He didn't learn from Boros and Marin. But it is true that, oh, the glorious heiress Kingsguard he talks about, he's the only one here. So, you know, Loris is obviously being a, a, a callow little fucker. when he says, dead man, everyone, like he's never going to die. But Loris does have a point there in that Loris can't learn from Arthur Dane or Gerald Hightower, however, however great they were. All he has is Jamie. And Jamie's not that impressive, like you said earlier. So what does it matter that Jamie learned from awesome, cool ghosts? That's not relevant to Loris's life. Uh, actually, it's funny that he says, they're all dead, man, everyone. So actually, no, Barristan's not dead, technically. Fact check on Loris, Barristan's not dead. But the, the more relevant point is that even if all those other guys were still alive, they'd be old now. They, they, Loris would have even less respect for them than he does for Jamie. Because Loris, of course, is the ultimate knight of summer, as Catelyn said about all the young men backing Renly, back in Clash of Kings, that these are these are young men who just were they just they don't have a war in their history. They weren't they were babies during Robert's Rebellion, they were kids during the Great Joy Rebellion. This is all a game for them. Like Jamie says, he thinks this is attorney. He thinks everything is attorney and he's just been called. And then Jamie so Jamie has to switch tacks when he realizes he's he's uh losing this conversation basically. And he compares it to a sword fight. But Jamie is learning other ways of handling a situation. Not everything has to be a sword fight. Now that's just a metaphor instead of very literal as it has been all through his life so far. And not for nothing that Jamie thinks of Tyrion here. This is a repeated pattern in his Storm of Swords chapters. Uh, when he was there being chased by uh, the guys from River Run at the very beginning, he, he thought to himself, Tyrion could think of something clever now, but all that occurs to me is to go at them with a sword. And then when they get to Harrenhal, they find out that Roose Bolton is in charge and he thinks that Tyrion would have known all there was to know about the Lord of the Dreadfort. Uh, he wondered what his brother would do. He thinks later Tyrion would find a way. Like, Tyrion is kind of Jamie's intellectual standard. And not even, I mean, intellectual, but also using words as your weapons and being able to cover up your vulnerabilities. Like, that kind of cleverness is something that Jamie feels he's never really had and that he has to kind of imitate. And so what he does, this I think probably is what Tyrion would do, Jamie brings up Renly. Because it makes Loras vulnerable, but also makes him more honest. And in a way, it's following up on a, the conversation about Balin Swan's brother. Because that's someone who matters to Valen Swan and could get in the way of his duty. Same kind of thing is going on here. Because Loris is the only member of the Kingsguard who backed another king first, which is pretty inconvenient. It's the War of Five Kings, but most of the guys in, in this Kingsguard were only ever backing the Lannisters. Or, mm -hmm. with Osmond Kettleblack, which just, you know, pulled off the street. <laughs> Wasn't serving anyone <laughs> at the time. No, Loris was backing Renly, and very clearly, as he says, wishes Renly was the king and that the Lannisters had all been killed. <laughs> that's basically, that's the little awkwardness here. Uh, and I like that the way Jamie kind of deals with that is forcing Loris to tell the truth that he literally could not fill Renly's shoes, that Garland had to do it for him, that this was for once something that the perfect Knight of Flowers could not do. And that kind of, that brings Loris uh, back down to earth, makes him a little less arrogant, easier to talk to. And in a way, Jamie feels better about Loris than the rest of them 
because Loris admits that he's still loyal to Renly. Because then his commitment to Tom and he says, I'll still die for him, that feels more honest than what Osmond Kettleblack was talking about. And uh, yeah, I love the the, the romance of, of Loris putting Renly in a secret grave. It's, it's so at odds with Renly's self-image as the best, most important person ever. And how it is this humble little grave that no one's ever going to know about. It makes me think of what Robert says about Lyanna, that she should have been in, in the hills somewhere with the sun and the trees and the birds. That's, from what it sounds like, that's where Renly is. And that matters more than what Renly was actually like, as Jamie thinks, yeah, the best. The best dressed, perhaps. That really doesn't matter, because Renly's dead. What he is now is something for Loris to believe in, a reason for him to be a good knight. And thinking about him as young Jamie, who was that for Jamie? Uh-oh, that was Cersei. <laughs> that was the person he believed in, or used to anyway, so we can see how easily those youthful ideals can be can be corrupted. And all the talk of the youthful arrogance in Dead Kings also also brings Rob to my mind, because Rob was a lot like Loris in a lot of ways. They even have their nicknames, Young Wolf and Knight of Flowers. And that's that's where all this ends, unfortunately. I do like how you mentioned that uh, Loris is the one who actually is a political thorn in Jamie's side, because with all respect to Balon Swan's treacherous family, um, Loris Tyrell is the only one from a great house, a great house that is both in communion with the throne and the Lannisters, but also probably their biggest threat being the second richest house and commanding, you know, the most men and all that sort of stuff. So, um, this is also probably another reason he's the last to talk to because everything that happens between them might have ramifications beyond just the two individuals in the room. Exactly. You don't want anyone else listening. It's like, who is Boros Blount going to complain to? Or Marin Trant? But Loris Tyrell, oh, he could complain to his dad and his grandmother, two of the most powerful people in Westeros. So mm-hmm. even though Jamie immediately gets into a fight with him, he knows that he has to try harder than he did with those other assholes. So when there's a Jamie chapter and Brienne isn't on page, all the other characters should be asking, where's, where's Brienne? Brienne? <laughs> Brienne's not quite a structuring absence in this chapter, but you do feel her absence, <laughs> um, especially after all the fun her and Jamie have had on the road and all the fun we have had reading them together. <laughs> we have to settle for Loris and Jamie talking about her, which isn't quite the same, but Jamie tries hard to recreate that magic by doing what he does best, praising Brienne with denigration. The conversation about Brienne's culpability in Renly's death ends up being a nice inquiry into both Jamie and Loris's character. I really like the bit about how Jamie says the difference between killing Renly and letting him die is the difference between himself and Boros Blunt. Again, each member of the Kingsguard ends up being a point of comparison for Jamie. But this is as good a snapshot as we get of Loris's character so far in this story as well, beyond just his unwavering commitment to Renly. Loris has constructed these notions about how Renly died, how it had to be Brienne, how else it could happen if he was otherwise surrounded by his men. The Purple Wedding ends up being a rebuttal to every last point Loris makes, and Jamie's further prosecution of Brienne's grief on the matter pushes Loris to admit, it might not have been her. The question of how to pierce a steel gorget is an especially tough riddle to solve. In these moments, you can see not only Loris's stubbornness slip away, But you also see regret emerge as he now starts to feel because he cut down Renly's other guards in a rage. Guards no culpable more than we know Brienne to be, and guards he probably considers friends at some level. He promises to question Brienne fairly, and the chivalric ideal of knighthood is maintained in Loris. If only if it was just that. (laughs) Renly thought Brienne was absurd, Loris admits which definitely lowers our perception of Renly, especially on our first go-around. I'm sure all rereaders will be familiar with previous Not A Cast debates on why Renly is history's greatest monster, of course. <laughs> naturally, naturally, getting in the way of, of unblemished hero Stannis Baratheon, of course. But no, I think 
while that is uh, casual cruelty of that kind is consistent with what we do see of Renly, it is worth noting that we don't see Renly say this. We see Loras say that Renly said this. But it is, I think it's there. Uh, it's important in contrast to how do Jamie's evolving feelings about Brienne, because that is how Jamie felt about Brienne f- at first, too. And now that now that has changed. Uh, and Brienne was kind of Jamie's bodyguard, as he says. Uh, Jamie, Brienne was kind of becoming uh, a Kingsguard in her own rights to Jamie. Um, but yeah, great point about how the, the Purple Wedding just shreds Loras's argument against Brienne. And that, I think, is in part why Loras is angry, as uh, uh, Jamie noticed at, this, at the start of this conversation, because Loras is kind of aware of that failure. Uh, this is the second king to die in his watch, and this time he doesn't even have the excuse of not being there. And I think this does... I think this cuts deeper than than what I was saying about Loris's personal resentment of Brienne. This is about feeling powerless to do your job and be the hero you're supposed to be. Like uh, uh like Jamie says about how Renly actually died. Like draw your sword, Loris. T- show me how you'd fight a shadow. And that I think is, is part in part what Loris is rejecting. It's not just that we don't have shadow babies in Westeros. What the hell is that? But also like Loris doesn't want to think about a situation in which being the Knight of Flowers wouldn't be enough, and especially wouldn't be enough to save the person he loved. But Loras is being a hypocrite here, too, and it's, it's something, of course, Jamie is very familiar with as the, the Kingslayer <laughs> commanding the Kingsguard. Loras says Brienne only got into the Rainbow Guard because she played a trick in the melee. But, as Jamie says, Loras played his own trick against Gregor and nearly died for it. And I love that Loras can't even describe Brienne's trick. She leapt. It doesn't matter because he realizes, oh, that, yeah, that wasn't actually a trick. What happened there was just Brienne is bigger and stronger than me, which we know Loras resents because he also talks about Renly's armor that same way. Garland's bigger and stronger than me. That's what Loras has a problem with here. And Loras asks why Catelyn and Brienne ran for it if they didn't kill Renly. And yeah, that's the same thing he said about Sansa, that he's, he's constructing this, this easy, convenient narrative in his head. And we see similar debates in real life. Oh, why, why would you run if you're innocent? If you run, you must, be, you must be guilty. No, it's because you can't trust that innocence is going to be enough to save you, because you can't trust that the people chasing you are pure white Kingsguard knights with only chivalry in their hearts and bluebirds are singing around them all the time, etc. Like, it's just not the reality. We saw that after Renly's death, that Loras killed two of his fellow Rainbow Guards out of grief. And he, it's so sad, but also so chilling in this scene when you realize this is the first time Loras appears to have really thought about that. Like, I killed those guys. Like, Renly was dead, worst thing ever, etc. But they were, I didn't kill Renly, but I did kill those guys. And he absolutely would have done the same to Catelyn and Brienne if they'd still been in the tents, waiting there innocently when he Mm -hmm. showed up. I mean, assuming Brienne didn't just kick his ass again. (laughs) But he definitely would have tried to kill them. You are the reason they ran, Loras. You and everyone else who would have made the same assumptions you did. Which makes me think of how Ned looked at Jamie after the Kingslaying. Those judgment in Ned's eyes. Like, that's what Brienne was running from. And Jamie explicitly makes that connection. Hey, she grieves for Renly. I never grieve for Eris. I know I did the right thing, even as I am haunted by the event itself and the aftermath. But Brienne grieves for Renly just like Loras, Jamie says. This isn't something that divides you. This is something you can have in common. Like Ned and Robert reconciling over their mutual grief for Lyanna. And Loras can't accept that. And I don't think it really is because he thinks Brienne killed Renly. Jamie draws the doubt out of him. Like, Loras might be arrogant and impulsive, but he's not stupid. And he realizes that something out of the ordinary had to happen to Renly because his armor was cut through. There's that great line, I tried myself, but it was not possible. I like envisioning Loras, he sees like the, the broken gorge and he like grabs a sword and tries to do it himself, <laughs> but can't. Like, that that doubt and honesty and kind of closest to Loris gets to humility there, that's his equivalent of Jamie opening himself up to Brienne. These are the signs for both white knights, young and less young, 
that there's more to them than a shiny sword and a nice cloak. And that's why it's so important that Jamie gives Loris the choice. He doesn't just tell him, fuck you, you're wrong. He gives Loris the choice and leverages Brienne's fate on his honor. Turns out the risk was worth it. Loris, as much as Jamie, lets Brienne go. And it's it's great because it, it feels like on some level that Jamie is becoming Arthur Dane after all, even though he doesn't really seem to realize it. Yeah, I know we joke about this being like performance reviews and a manager's meeting and all that stuff. But what what do good managers do? They make their people under them feel empowered. And even decisions that are maybe theirs, they make the people under them feel like they're coming to those decisions by themselves, that they have some agency in the matter. So yeah, I think Loris Terrell leaves the book about her night because of Jamie. And that's, that's not nothing. So after all that, Jamie sits alone again. Who is he in relation to his brother's? Who is he as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard? Who is he as father to a murdered son? Who is he as he stares at his stump of a sword hand? All questions Jamie will look to in his future chapters, including, of course, getting that golden hand. I kind of want to take a tangent here, though, regarding Jamie's last lines. There are other debts to pay. This is, of course, the Lannister ethos, and in this moment for Jamie, I think he is trending kind of more positively that he wants to do some good in this world. Of course, we've seen how Tyrion pays his debts, how Cersei continues to pay hers, and Tyrion will start repaying his debts with cruelty and malice starting at the end of book at the end of this book. Um, and I also really want to quickly flag Emmett's last Star Wars episode when he talks about the debt between Han Solo and Luke Skywalker, which is another form of kind of debt and repayment that I was thinking as I was coming up with this next bit here. A solo always pays his debts. Wait. <laughs> Sometimes. Yes. <laughs> That's two you owe me now. <laughs> Some very minor spoilers here, but the ending of Fargo season five, which aired very recently, mm-hmm. hit the same exact point. Each season of Fargo features a killer of almost supernatural origins, and this character in season five, named Munch, confronts the season's protagonist, Dorothy, in the very last scene. While ostensibly they've been on the same side for big chunks of this narrative, Dorothy had very early early on maimed and aggrieved Munch, and this final confrontation is this mythical killer wanting to repay what is owed. This debt, where violence was inflicted upon him, must be compensated for. It's very similar, intentionally so, to Carla Jean Moss and Anton Chigurh at the end of No Country for Old Men, where he shows up to murder her as part of some code or cosmic or karmic retribution because of what her husband had done to him. It's not dissimilar to what the Lannisters think, that there's some absolutist ledger of debt and repayment that they must always take red ink to in the end. Both Carla Jean and Dorothy, in their respective stories, challenge this killer. Why must the debt be repaid? Why is it owed? If you're just paying back with violence, aren't you just creating a credit line to more violence? In both cases, the protagonist is challenging this nigh-eye-for-an-eye world of violence and never-ending deficit of peace. While this is only tangential to Jamie's utterance here, I think it's something to keep an eye on as the violent ends of Cersei and Tyrion take center stage in A Feast with Dragons. And if the Lannister ideology around debt repayment is itself why their political hegemon crumbles with the death of Tywin. So moving into foreshadowing and groundwork, first we hear Jaime think no one was any closer to finding Sansa Stark, however. Perhaps Jaime should look into that himself, and he very much delegates that duty to Brienne of Tarth next time out in with Jaime in A Storm of Swords. This is a thread we've been following from the very beginning with Jamie when he thinks sarcastically to himself, maybe I should sense it back. Wouldn't that be a laugh? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be funny as hell if I actually did what I said I would do? But by the time we get to the end of the book, he's been through enough changes that he actually, unironically, wants that to happen. 
And in relation with searching for Sansa Stark, uh, Jamie brings up the tunnels that weave all the way through the Red Keep and how Varys might be the only one who knows about them. And of course, it's going to be Varys's knowledge of those tunnels that, you know, Jamie at sword point makes Varys go get Tyrion and get him out of the Red Keep. So very much a clear pointing to where Jamie and Tyrion are going at the end of this book. I love that for all of, of Varys's uh, sly, subtle complexity. Jamie just gets him to do what he wants by just showing up and putting a dagger to his throat and going, do it or I'll kill you. Varys <laughs> goes, fine, fine. I hate the sight of my own blood. But yeah, we call Varys the spider not only because he's at the center of a web of paranoia, but also because like a spider, he just crawls around places no one else crawls around. And I love that in, in Feast Dance. He's just kind of, you just know he's in the Red Keep somewhere, but he doesn't show up until the absolute end with Kevon and Pycelle. That's great stuff. So, going into uh, theory and discussion, since we have all, all the Kingsguard, or most of the Kingsguard, uh, here together in, in one chapter, as the story goes along with the story so far, we've got a handful of them still in King's Landing. We still have Boris Blount there, still have Marin Trance, still have Osmond Kettleblack, Loras Terrell is on Dragonstone, uh, Eris Hokard died down in Dorne, Balin Swan was sent to replace him and then probably die again, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably the next one to die down in Dorne. So those three guys, uh, along with Robert Strong, who we can talk about another time, he gets appointed later. But of the guys in this room, three of them are still in King's Landing. So what do you think is going to happen to them, to, to Blount, Trant, and Kettleblack? Nothing good, I'm guessing. I guess with Blount, I, I really want him to die eating, <laughs> eating I really something. Hope he does. You, Seems like a mean thing to say. But yes, yes and you know Jamie would get the biggest kick out of that too. And he'd be like, yeah, I was smart <laughs> to appoint this guy to taste his food. But uh, <laughs> this is his best administrative yes. decision. Um, Trant. Like he he almost deserves kind of the comeuppance he got in the show, even though that was you know not going to be Marin Trans character in the book. It's what Raph the Sweetling or whoever it is uh, in that Mercy One chapter from the Winds of Winter. Um, but I really do think not that there necessarily is karmic retribution in George's world, but literally beating Sansa Stark, I feel like he needs to die a specifically vicious death. Um, and I see that happening. He doesn't seem like the character George is gonna you know have just kind of right off into the sunset and like, you know, lead sitting in Hawaii with a nice. Drink yeah. 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 Um, there's probably some shitty character who will have that fate, but I don't think it's Marin Trant. Uh, Bron it is. Um, and then going to Osmond Kettleblack, um, I still, I feel like there's some bigger, like kind of conspiracy behind the scenes with Littlefinger that's going to emerge itself at one point. Um, whether it's Kettleblack doing something down at King's Landing or just defecting and joining whatever Littlefinger's up to later on. That I'm kind of unsure on because there's kind of four Kettleblacks you have to triangulate and assume at some level they're all going to be in on it because I feel like they're all at some level in Littlefinger's pay. Um, but I'm... He he is literally the question mark as Jamie like literally is highlighting in his last two chapters, big question mark around this guy. What's going to happen to him? Please pay attention to him. I feel like George is telling us that through Jamie. That's a good point. Much less certain. Yeah, agreed across the board. I think uh, George is setting up Boris Blatt to suffer. He even starts turning gray at one point <laughs> when he's being Tommen's food taster, especially with the uh, the sand snakes coming to town with both Nymeria and Tyene. Tyene is fond of poison, as a couple characters put it. So that could very easily, that could be a great thing where like Boris Blount dies and only the reader understands fully what happens. I think that would be great. Marin Trant, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not going to be anything like the show because he's not going to Bravos, but I could very easily see like because, again, he is smarter than some of the other idiots who end up on the King's Guard. So I can see him. Maybe he sneaks out of King's Landing when, when shit goes down. And maybe, like, in a much later Arya chapter, she just happens to run into him and, and takes him out, like, in a tavern somewhere. Could very, very easily see that happening. And the Kettleblacks, yeah, I mean, 
uh, Osni is the one who Cersei actually is actually sleeping with, or we know she's sleeping with him. It's kind of left ambiguous as to whether she actually slept with either of the other two. And Osni was the one she sent in to uh, kill the uh, original High Septon who got replaced by the High Sparrow. And then Osni is the one who confessed all that to the High Sparrow under torture. And he's still a prisoner of the faith. Doubt he's lasted much longer. He might. He's. Uh, it seemed like he'd been pretty kind of driven, driven over the edge by the torture. Maybe he'll end up joining the faith at this point. Osfrid, we see very little of him. Uh, he is in command of the Gold Cloaks, uh, but he immediately lost that job as soon as Kevon showed up into town. As we've talked about this before with the Kettleblacks, there seems to be yeah a potential to do something for Littlefinger, but who knows what that would be. So I think. I, I do get the sense that George is, yeah, describing Kettleback as a question mark, maybe even to himself, mm-hmm. like, you know, TBD, <laughs> to fill in later. Blount and Trance, the, the, the threat is clear, why and how they would die, but pro- maybe maybe still be deciding on the Kettleblacks. And that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 8. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps new listeners find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes every month and early access to our regular episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Blue Sky and Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, and you can shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, at gmail.com. And you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter and Blue Sky. And I'm Manu at Manuclear Bomb. We'll be back with a new episode of My Brother and My Captain, My Podcast, as we return to our Lord of the Rings coverage. Returning The to- return of the king and the queen. Yes, yes. We will be back. We will be talking about the last passage of Arwen Undomiel when we return uh, sometime in the next week or so. Hell yeah. So uh, in terms of uh, what's about coming up next on the Nauticast, my next Fever Dream episode covering George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel Fever Dream over on our Patreon. Next episode there covering Chapter 29. It's going to be out for all of our $5 and above patrons next week. A couple weeks after that, also on our Patreon for our $5 and above patrons is going to be our next Star Wars episode, our third one on The Empire Strikes Back, a.k.a. Episode 5, a.k.a. The Good One. And then next time on A Song of Ice and Fire, Sansa Stark goes home. Not her home, of course. We're going to Shay Littlefinger in the Vale to meet up with Lysa. This might be the single most de- deliberately awkward chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. There is so much, so much cringe in that chapter from, from Littlefinger and his, his seduction of Sansa to everything Lysa does and says to Marillion, who's just the worst person in the world. This is going to be a great chapter of me going, I'm be doing that the whole time. It's going to be like the most uncomfortable Curb Your Enthusiasm episode that we're going to be uh, breaking down. Exactly. I think we should set up the usual intro music. I'll just have do It's going to be great. So uh, thanks again for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Sansa 6. 